The funny thing about burnout and PTSD is that sometimes we're so concerned with what to call it that we don't get to the actual solutions, which may have way more to do with acceptance and forgiveness. This is my conversation with Scott Anderson. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Scott Anderson. He's the author of Playing Big. He's a licensed therapist, a serial entrepreneur, and an executive coach. And we're going to talk all about all of these things today. They're all of interest to me. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Hirsch. Thanks for having me. So, uh, so let's begin with uh, let's begin with the executive coaching. Um, because I have a feeling that we'll back into a lot of the other. A lot of the other items. What uh, what prompted you to pursue executive coaching? You know, um, about gee, about twenty years ago now, I was running um, one of my companies, an advertising agency, and uh, I was at sort of a stuck place. Nothing was wrong. I just, but everything felt just kind of stuck. And as an entrepreneur, of course, what I want is action all the time. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, I, 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 you know, somebody told me you should get a coach, and I didn't know anything about it at the time. And it was a relatively new idea compared to today anyway. I called the guy up, and by luck, it was a tremendous uh, – he is a tremendous guy named Kevin Ross, who is uh, just wonderful. He's in Sacramento, California. But anyway, by total luck or divine intervention or whatever, I ended up with Kevin. And I was just – in 90 days' time, I worked with him for a very intense 90 days – during that period, I discovered that I that I wanted to be a coach myself mainly because I was seeing the results that he was getting out of me, and I just couldn't believe how much we were getting done. During that period, I started a not-for-profit called At Ease USA, which has since then turned into a, a, a you know really pretty big and successful nonprofit to help military families recover from post-traumatic stress disorder. But I mean, this was just a, a gleam in my eye. And in 90 days time, all of these things started to really take shape. And I was just a, so impressed by Kevin's skills as a coach, but also by what was possible, because it felt like I did more in 90 days than I had done in the nine previous years. Um, so that's what really got me hooked, was just the being able to see the, the power of it in my own personal case. And in terms of your work as a therapist, same question. Yeah, I, you know, I got into, um, ther- well, as I mentioned, I started this not-for-profit called Eddie's USA. And as part of that, uh, I was involved in raising a lot of money to develop uh, leading-edge uh, PTSD treatment technology. And, uh, you know, in order to do that, um, I had to be able to be con- significantly more fluent in psychology and in mental health. And so that led me to get a master's degree in clinical counseling so I would be fluent enough to understand how I was raising the money, what we were raising it for, and whether we were getting what we were paying for. 
basically. It ultimately resulted in we, we formed a partnership with the Israeli government and with uh, scientists at Tel Aviv University to create some and, and clinically test uh, some treatment technology that's, that's still very much leading edge. This goes back to 2007, and um, we were just beginning to see um, military people return to the United States from Afghanistan and from Iraq. Um, And, uh, you know, we were seeing and one of the things that I didn't realize, and I was fortunate to meet some people that helped me understand, but the PTSD is is a, a bad problem with the combatants who return to the United States, of course. But it's uh, it's a much bigger problem than that because the family members tend to be affected directly and indirectly, and there is a, a form of PTSD that comes from living with people with PTSD called indirect or virtual post-traumatic stress disorder, and the impact of that is you know if there's one combatant and three or four family m- members, it exponentially increases the the cost of PTSD in our country. So that really got my attention. I was able to meet some moms and dads of returning combatants and uh, wives and spouses and children, and that really got my attention. Have you found that the the post-traumatic stress suffered by people in the military varies from country to country? Um, You know, it's actually actually quite similar, um, you know, from culture to culture. Um, The reason that we engage with the Israeli government is that a lot of the most leading edge um, mental health treatment technologies are being developed in Israel and specifically PTSD. Most of the of the leading edge technology there is being developed by Israeli psychologists and scientists. And in fact, the uh, the the team that we ended up partnering with are all former commandos in the Israeli uh, army, which is the equivalent of our sort of SEAL Delta Force um, kind of people. And these guys, when they got out of the Israeli military, all of them diagnosed with PTSD, uh, your trajectory in Israel is largely defined by your military career. And these guys were, this one gentleman was the commander of all of the commandos in the Israeli, uh, uh, that branch of military service. Anyway, they got sort of the Israeli gold card and they got to do whatever they wanted to do when they got out and they wanted to create technology to help people recover. What we found is um, across across cultures that the the PTSD is very similar, and also that combat PTSD has a lot in common with the kind of PTSD that occurs as a result of sexual assault, domestic violence, um, uh, uh, domestic um, beatings, uh, and domestic violence in general. And so um, there are there are a lot of commonalities. There's actually also, and we'll talk about burnout at some point, but there's actually also some uh, some similarities with uh, with burnout as a uh, as an experience. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, you know, when we when we think about what we've what we were all going through today, all over the world, what 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 the what collectively we're we're experiencing, um, where do you put that kind of? You know, like someone will say, oh. You know, I I've been traumatized by the pandemic, or I'm traumatized by the by the by uh, you know school shootings and and mass right. shootings in America. Right. I'm traumatized by you know where do you kind of put these various traumas in a in a in a box? You know, like where do you how do you assess and and sure. and kind of. 
you know, that was yeah, one of the piece. things that was really informative for me was uh, during my um, getting my master's degree in clinical counseling, I did a number of internships in different facilities. And I was working in a facility in Omaha's um, near north side, which is a kind of a ghettoized, um, lower socioeconomic area historically, and um, very high crime and um, high levels of poverty. Anyway, while I was working there, um, I was doing PTSD screeners. I was administering those to everybody who came in the door, which are mainly people from the, the couple of zip codes around this clinic. And one of the things I discovered is, well, first of all, there are specific criteria for PTSD. Um, you know, I mean, we can talk about being being traumatized, but with respect to post-traumatic stress disorder specifically, there are some very specific criteria that you must meet in order to have a diagnosis. And this is not to, mm -hmm. to discount anybody's traumatic experience, but to have a PTSD diagnosis, you have to meet certain criteria. And one of the things that was really startling to me was that um, every man, woman, and child, little little kids, old people, everybody in between who I screened for PTSD as they walked into this clinic um, all had a, uh, a positive um, result for post-traumatic stress disorder. And this particular zip code in this particular neighborhood is um, there's a, a high, high degree of violence of, of uh uh, discharged weapons of, you know, murder and, and, and so forth just, you know, and has been for some time tragically. Um, so it was interesting to me at that point, my eyes sort of opened in terms of what post-traumatic stress disorder could be. And, um, you know, and, and unfortunately there are a lot of people who, who, um, meet the criteria, number one, and number two, there is a tendency to, uh, it's there is a, a nature and a nurture component of PTSD, and one of the things we know, um, in fact, in working with our friends in Israel, we learned that uh, people that returned from uh, death camp in Germany, uh, who definitely had post-traumatic stress disorder, um, that there that there is, um, and it's debated whether it's a nature, uh, the result of nature or the result of nurture, um, but that several generations. Uh, following the survivors of death camp that immigrated to Israel, um, you know, two or three generations, four generations later, the um, there is still uh, PTSD in the families. And there is some theory that it's epigenetic; that the genes are affected um, as a result of this kind of trauma. That it's not just psychological, but it's genetic. There's genetic uh, genetic impact. Um, but this is this is one of the reasons I became so kind of horrified by PTSD, but also really interested is that the opportunity, if we don't do anything, the opportunity for PTSD to be pushed on generation after generation is very high. Uh, on the other hand, if we can do something to interrupt that cycle, then we can do a lot of good uh, in the same direction. Is there a goal in the immediate term uh, for people? It's just, I, people just seem to be in a in a very fuzzy headspace in a lot of ways mm -hmm. right now, you know it's one thing when you have a very specific diagnosis of someone or they have a very specific challenge or a specific trauma, but uh, I think a lot of us are sometimes just walking into walls. You know, we're just kind of yeah. walk, we just don't kind of like get it from 
you know, one day, the next, or, or we have ups and downs, you know, we just have, we have, you know, more mood swings that, Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, you know, is there, is there like a, like a kind of a, a mindset shift or tweak that helps people in, in today's world? Well, you know, the, the ultimate mind shift I think is acceptance and, um, and acceptance and forgiveness, actually, um, based on the work that I've done both with PTSD and with burnout. I mean, that's really the, you know, the name of the game um, to be will- to be capable of accepting reality as it is um, and and also to be able to forgive ourselves and others uh, seem to be the, you know, if there was a, a tweak or a hack and neither one of those things is easy. Both of those things are extremely challenging. Um, but. You know, those are the things that I see again and again and again. Um, that that the the people who are able to um, deal best. Let's just take the United States for the the last since nine eleven, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, are are folks that are able to uh, accept themselves and others, um, accept reality for what it is, um, and in particular to be able to forgive themselves and others. Uh, this is one of the things we found with post-traumatic, or excuse me, with burnout. So, so burnout, you know, and you said it does affect a lot of us. I mean, according to Gallup right now, um, 89% of the American workforce says that they feel burned out most of the time. And, um, and by burned out, what we mean, there's some, there are three specific criteria as defined by the World Health Organization, which has recently categorized burnout as a bona fide disorder. The term was created by a psychologist in the 70s to really describe compassion fatigue in medical settings. Interestingly, um, he did a study in the 70s with emergency room doctors and nurses, and he coined the term burnout um, to describe a psychological state where it was like what we today we would call compassion fatigue or compassion exhaustion. Right. And um, and that the, the the flame of passion went out; it burned out. So or to speak. like a desensitization, right? In a way, exactly, right. And so that was I what, used to hear that doctors become desensitized to to tragedy or sure or, or sure. And I, I presume over time it's necessary to be somewhat desensitized yeah. to do your job. Right. But um, anyway, in. In, you know, in America today, according to the Gallup folks anyway, um, 89% of the American workforce uh, says that they are burnout. And by burnout, the three criteria for the technical clinical definition of burnout by the World Health Organization includes, number one, an exhaustion that does not get better. Or in other words, day after day after day, waking up exhausted, no matter whether you've had a good sl- uh, night's sleep or vacation or whatever, that there's this pervasive feeling of exhaustion. The second feeling, or the second symptom, is a disconnection from things that used to be passionate about. This could be work, um, uh, it could be relationships, family relationships, business relationships, um, married relationships, what have you, relationships with the community. And the third symptom is um, feeling an an antipathy or even a resentment um, towards people that we used to um, be in relationship with. So. This could be at work. A lot of times what happens is people who are burnt out tend to feel not only disconnected from but antagonistic towards uh, coworkers, um, bosses, employees, 
even customers, investors, board of directors, et cetera. Uh, so that's sort of the three-legged stool of, of burnout, um, that this pervasive, un, unending exhaustion, a disconnection, a feeling of isolation and disconnection. And of course, COVID and all of the quarantine we went through didn't help that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the, um, the, this feeling of, of uh, antipathy or antagonism or even resentment um, towards people that we're formerly in relationship with. So when you're when you're uh, coaching executives, uh, where do you start with an executive? Sure. Uh, how does that process walk me through that process? Absolutely. You, well, you, you know, one of the most important things, um, maybe not surprisingly, is just for folks to understand that that a um, this is a bona fide disorder that is uh, more of a pandemic than COVID. I mean, it's you know even if. Even if Gallup is half right that 89% of the American um, workforce is burned out, you know, even if it's right. 40%, it's still uh, a lot more pervasive than, than COVID. And so, um, so th- that's the first thing to understand is that, is that burnout is a specific uh, cluster of symptoms that are the same. And, um, and, it, and it helps a lot of people to understand, number one, that, that it's, a, it's a disorder like it's not like it's not exactly like depression or anxiety, but um, because it has components of both, but it is like them in the, to the extent that there are specific symptoms, as I mentioned. So that helps people at least to begin with to understand, you know, maybe I'm not completely crazy, or maybe my life is is not bereft of meaning, but maybe I'm going through something that that has uh, predictable symptoms and also has proven strategies to recover for recovery. Right. So the first thing is to understand that you're not alone. In fact, if Gallup is right, you're right in line with most of the American workforce right now. Um, it's especially difficult for business leaders and business owners or leaders of any institution because, um, you know, they're they're wondering basically how long can I keep this up and is it already transparent that I'm falling apart? Uh, am I faking it yeah. till I make it or, or are people still buying um, my leadership pose? Um, so it becomes doubly difficult for people in leadership roles. And, uh, but one of the things we found that's really, really helpful is just, just to have an open, honest conversation about it. We go to a lot of companies and have conversations and, and you know, just simply tell people, this is what burnout is. Um, there are some symptoms. There, we have an online assessment that, in fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave you a link for the, for the show notes if yeah, you want. Please. And people can you know, pretty quickly and easily take this uh, online assessment and get a sense of whether they fulfill the right. criteria or not. Anyways, number one is, is education, information. The second piece that, that helps a lot of people is to know that there are evidence-based um, recovery strategies that, um, that really work. And, um, you know, when I first started working on this, it was frustrating as a coach and as somebody who worked on PTSD and as a, as a clinical counselor, um, I was not finding as many solutions for specifically for burnout as I had hoped, uh, neither from my own training nor from my colleagues. And so um, and from the kind of the, the library. So I had to do, uh, you know, quite a bit of research and ran into some really, really smart uh, people. There's a, a woman um, named um, Christine Maslach at UCAL Berkeley. 
um, who is, I believe, in her 80s now, but is pretty much recognized as the international authority on workplace burnout. And she has created a uh, assessment instrument called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. And most of what I know about about burnout um, symptoms and, more importantly, burnout recovery, come from the work that Dr. Maslach and her team has done, as well as a lot of things that I just tried on myself. I was going through my own really crushing burnout. I had just I was in the process of selling a company and running out of gas in a advertising agency that I owned and, uh, you know, was, and, and was experiencing all the symptoms I just mentioned, but didn't know what it was. So, um, anyway, so the, the next step basically is just to realize in addition to this being a predictable set of symptoms, but that there are evidence-based, uh, recovery techniques that are, um, that really do work. And, um, and so then the, you know, the quicker we get people started in doing that, uh, the better, um, you know, part of, part of the, um, the problem is that people think, uh, especially in America think, well, if I take a vacation, I'll be better. Everybody assumes I was I'll just going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask that that was going through my head. I was saying, well, you know, the go-to is to take a break, yeah, time away, exactly. go to an Island, exactly. go on a vacation, turn off the phone. Yeah. And it ranges everything from going home at night after a day's work or staying in your home if you're working at home and, and watching television and watching Netflix and decompressing. And so there's the hope that that will help. And then that doesn't help. And then people think, well, I'll take a week of vacation, you know, or a couple of days of vacation. Um, and but people with burnout quickly discover that 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 doesn't help. You would think it would, but it really doesn't help. And in fact, it can sometimes make things worse. Um, we have we've had a number of people in our program who have gone through extensive sabbaticals um, and thinking that that would be the answer. And it has been to the extent that we ran into them and they were able to get busy with some of these evidence based um, skills. But but sabbatical by itself doesn't help. We've had people move from one town to another. We've had people sell businesses, quit jobs, get divorced, try all kinds of things to try to mix up their lives. And unfortunately, I found that that every that as they say, where everywhere you go, there you are. Um, it's an right. inside job. It's it's not something that that can be solved in a kind of a superficial or cosmetic way. So is that what so? It may be backtracking a little bit, but but a telltale sign, let's say, let's say I let's say I feel like I need a vacation, right? And I feel like I like also seasonally, you know, I we've been I've been talking with some of my guests about seasonal affective disorder, sure. and you know, coming from a really great climate and moving to the Midwest <laughs> and dealing with all of that, you know, it it's natural, but you know. Is there a is there a tell or a couple of telltale signs where mm -hmm. you say okay it's something deeper than yeah. just my needing a break? Exactly. Well, one of them is that we you know the people that we work with a lot in our program are people who have already tried vacations and they've already tried changing jobs or they've already tried sabbaticals and have found unfortunately that it just doesn't work. Um, you know, people we've we've worked with people with seasonal affective disorder. Not that that isn't a real thing. It is, but you know, only to find that when the days grow longer, they still feel the same way. So you asked about telltales. Right. One of them is this pervasive exhaustion. 
that no matter what you do, you wake up exhausted, no matter whether you get a good night's sleep or you go on vacation or whatever, but that you wake up tired anyway. And uh, a lot of the people that we work with are folks that are really afraid, you know, maybe today is the day that I can't get out of bed. Maybe today is the day that I can't fake it till I make it one more day. Maybe today is the day that, especially if you're leading a business or an organization, you know, if I don't show up, things are going to stop. And um, yeah. and the and the fear is the exhaustion is so uh, profound, both mental and physical exhaustion. The fear is, you know, one day maybe I won't be able to to fake it till I make it. One day I won't be able to get up. And then what happens? And that's often the the point that that where we where we get to work with people that they realize, boy, I'm this is a potentially dangerous thing. It can cost me my my career. It could cost me my marriage sometimes or family relationships. And um, and that's the biggest part of it, unfortunately, is that it definitely does have a cost. Let's talk about uh, the dream job. Uh-huh. Um, and what can happen when you lose, uh, kind of like in a, in a romance, you become, uh, you know, d- disinfatuated with, your, with right. your dream job. And now, now it's just a job. So, right. uh, what's your, what are your, what are, what was your, uh, take on that? Well, you know, and, and, and everybody, I think, is sort of different in this respect. I mean, there are entrepreneurs have a very short, everything has a very short half-life <laughs> for entrepreneurs, and uh, they are bored very easily. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why entrepreneurs are uh, great starters of businesses, but, but not great finishers, and that because they get bored and uh, may stir things up just to stir things up. And to keep things interesting. So a lot depends on where you fall on that sort of uh, attention span uh, continuum. Um, mm-hmm. So, but what often happens is that is that regardless of your attention span, at some point a job that was the dream job, um, as you say, loses its allure. And there are a number of reasons that that could happen. One of them could be that you simply have, have exhausted the nuance of it. Um, another option is that it could be burnout. You know, it could be that that because that's one of the chief symptoms is that things that you formerly were passionate about or consumed with uh, or that were really life giving for you cease to, to be that. Um, so and burnout is also one of the symptoms. And one of the reasons that we or is one of the, the potential reasons for losing that allure. And that's one of the reasons why we really with the people that we work with, we advise them to not make any big decisions until they've been um, they've been working in our system for a while, because sometimes it's true that they should move on to something else. But in other cases, it's just a symptom of burnout and that, unfortunately, we've seen people flush careers and marriages and other things when really it was the 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 general malaise of burnout. Are there some uh, success stories that you can cite um, examples of people who've overcome burnout and what that looks like? Sure. Yes. Thankfully, there there are. I mean, you know, one of the things I'll just say about myself is that um, so I, I sold uh, an advertising agency and was really, uh, in, in my case, I should have left uh, and let my partners run it, um, you know, years before I left. I was really out of gas. Um, and after selling the agency, I went into a, a deep burnout, depression and so forth. And, 
in my own case, what I, what I found kind of eating my own cooking and taking my own medicine that, um, you know, the, that the years, the last five years since I've been practicing these skills have been by far the best years of my life, much better than any of my best years prior to that. But I'll give you one example. I was on the phone this morning with a client who was in Krakow, Poland, of all places, and she works for a um, international corporation as a systems analyst. And she is a, a classic. Well, there's a number of issues there. Krakow is also 100 miles from the Ukrainian border. And the city of Krakow is now 25% Ukrainian. They've had like 150,000 Ukrainians move into Krakow. Right. And this woman, like a lot of people in Krakow, have a, uh, a woman and her daughter living in a spare bedroom uh, in their home right now. So they've got all of that going on. But the reason that she called me in the first place was that she was really burned out from doing a systems analyst job for a Fortune 500 company, um, international company. And she was taking this sabbatical, and her concern was she was about two months into a three-month sabbatical. And what she confessed to me was that she wasn't feeling any better. She had taken this time mm -hmm. off where she was going to try to regain her energy and eat better and exercise and all those things, which are certainly not bad. But what she found was two months into doing that, she didn't feel any better than she did pre-sabbatical. So um, it was really fun. I talked to her this morning and um, you know, and things have really changed for her, her, you know, and, and so much of, unfortunately, so much of burnout is self-inflicted. Uh, a lot of, a lot of us who are burned out are burned out because we've discovered different hacks and different, um, habits that'll help us that have helped us succeed. So for example, um, a lot of people who we work with are, are burned out in part because they never say no. Uh, to anybody's request. And this has propelled their career. Um, they've been the go-to right. people in their organization. They, and so it's been a superpower. Uh, but as, as we say in our program, the superpower has, by the time we talk to folks, has turned to kryptonite. And the very thing that had propelled them in their careers was now is now killing them. You know, we, we thrive so often on praise. We get praise exactly. from our clients, from our colleagues, from our, from our employers. And the things that they love about us may not be the things that we love most about ourselves. The things we do best yeah. may or not be the things we love. Yeah, we love to do. And and that's the point is it, it can even have a, a detrimental effect exactly. on our psyche. And exactly. yet we're doing it because on paper it's, it's good. Exactly. You know, on paper we're advancing and on paper we're um, – do you find people discovering through – your process that their priorities have all been kind of conditioned or, or maybe bit, like what's important in life. Is yes. that a, a pretty common, uh, uh, revelation if exactly if you will, or, or, or no, confrontation? You've put your finger on it. I mean, what we, what we basically, what we know about burnout is that, um, the, the very superpowers that got people to typically high places in organizations and got them a lot of praise and whatnot um, are, have taken them in a direction that's not in sync with their values. Um, and, but their psychological um, well-being kind of is sort of dependent on f continuing to fulfill this role that is not consistent with their values. So there's a basic impasse. Um, and, and that's one of the things that, that ultimately leads to burnout is that 
um, a, a, a technique like never saying no, for example, which might have served you in the first five years of your career, um, you probably should have outgrown it quite a while ago. But you continue in that direction. And uh, so part of what, what we, we find with folks is that they have uh, recurring thoughts and uh, emotional patterns that keep them stuck. Um, and so what we, what we substitute for these disturbing thoughts and, and feelings is we try to um, – we spend a lot of time in our course having people discover or sometimes rediscover their values in terms of what makes life life for them. And to try to define yeah. life for themselves in terms of their um, in terms of their own personal um, identity uh, versus uh, how they are rewarded or applauded in the workforce, and um, because the problem with with always saying yes is that uh, it's kind of like the bully taking your lunch money. You can you can say yes today, but it'll come back tomorrow and want more tomorrow and again and again and again. Um, whereas, and it's, and if it isn't consistent with your values, then you're never going to be very happy. Uh, and you'll always be exhausted fighting this battle between the things that people applaud you for versus the things that you really uh, are true for you. So you put your finger on it. It's, it's really one of the most important principles is to, um, identify or re-identify your values. And by that, we mean the things that you love most in life. Um, and to be, and to use that as your compass going forward versus survival in the workplace or, or uh, applause in the workplace. Um, yeah. So that we start to work out of personal integrity versus out of external, um, recognition. Is that in some way what's behind this, uh, you know, work shortage, everything from, you know, pilots to, to truck drivers and right. people just in jobs deciding they don't. And there's reasons, you know, sub kind of reasons of, uh, that, that have to do with this particular jobs, but as, uh, in mass, you know, is that kind of something that's behind this, that people survived a pandemic and they, and they started to think, well, wh what am I doing? Yeah, there's so many, you know, I'm not even sure that we can know, I think 10 years from now, a sociologist or political historian is going to write a really interesting book about what happened um, with the great resignation. Um, but there's no doubt that, uh, that at least one contributing factor is the existential question that, that the pandemic, that COVID has raised, um, with the you know with a million people dying, there's a, a very real possibility I might die, and it calls to mind in a way that nothing else will. What's important to me? What do I value? What makes life life for me? That's definitely part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think, is the accumulated exhaustion, which to me, uh, most of the research that we've looked at says that burnout started way before the pandemic, and probably goes back at least to 2008 um, to the Great Recession of 2008, if not all the way back yes. to 9/11. And um, so the exhaustion of, of Americans um, and the American workforce is not a recent thing. Um, most of what I've read suggests that, the, that COVID was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, but that the conditions for this existed prior to COVID. Um, that makes sense to me because, because had, had the conditions not existed prior, 
you might see people coming out of COVID and then just snapping right back to whatever exactly. their mindset was before. You know, we're, we're on the beach and there's a big storm and, you know, we're just praying that we don't get swept away. Right. And then as soon as it subsides, you know, we're the same, you know, jerk we were five right. minutes ago. Right. You know, we promised God all these things we're going right, to do. Right. And then the storm passes and we're like, oh, I forget that. Yeah. It's over. You know, and I, and I don't think, I think, Certainly, in terms of the Great Resignation, it doesn't seem like that's you know like that's a a, a very passing phase. It does seem like there's something really uh, powerful behind it. We are seeing um, uh, there there you know a lot of the Great Resignation were early retirees in their late fifties and early sixties who retired and um, right, but we're now seeing a lot of people come back realizing that retirement's not either possible or not as good as they thought it would be. So there are a lot of people, and that's the biggest chunk of the, of the great resignation are people who took early retirement that are, that are bouncing back now. Right. Well, I saw a film last night that is perhaps the most profound meditation on retirement and the struggles of, uh, of finally letting go of your career. Uh, Top Gun Maverick <laughs> with Tom Cruise. Uh, <laughs> explores the theme of <laughs> of can are can we let go yeah can you can you if you if you look that good at 59 do you really need to stop flying battle missions yeah uh and isn't that just a number isn't it just arbitrary and do you really need to let go of your glory yeah um scott uh i really appreciate your being my on. pleasure Hirsch. i've enjoyed it being being on the show thank you and um and I do, uh, I do look forward to uh, to following your your work. Are you? Do you have anything new in uh, in the works that uh, that we should throw a mention of out well, there before if, we if go? Well, if people are interested in finding out about the the evidence um, based uh, recovery methods, we have a uh, kind of an informational masterclass about what burnout is and what you can do about it. And so that might be a good place to go. And then, as I said, uh, after the show, I'll give you a link to our, um, uh, our burnout uh, online assessment, which I think people might be interested in. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.